Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 24 of the End of Sports podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am joined as mostly, uh, especially when, I, when I'm here, uh, there's all three of us. I'm joined by Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey. And Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi, y'all. So we're not going to go long in this intro uh, because we have yet another long episode for you. Uh, I just can't resist. We can't resist. Uh, we have these great conversations and we don't really want to um, slice them apart. We want to share them with you. So what I'm going to do really quick is just give you a sense of what is in this conversation because it kind of covers a lot of different ground. We start on the broader question of athletic labor as labor, um, sport during the pandemic, you know, things that we refer to frequently, but we have a special guest today, uh, Hamilton Nolan, who is a, a labor reporter and really brings a wealth of knowledge and expertise on the labor movement more broadly in the labor movement today. So we're really mining that expertise and bringing it to sport. So we have a kind of broader conversation first about that. And then we move to boxing, which is one of um, one of Hamilton's passions and something he's written about quite a bit and try to think through boxing as kind of an aesthetic question, a labor question and all that. Then we go exactly where you think we're going to go, which is to college sport. Um, and we talk uh, at great length about college sport as a labor issue, but but really something that we haven't explored in this show before college sport within the labor movement and what possibilities exist um, for college athletes in terms of seeing themselves as workers within the labor movement and what kind of actions could be part of that. Um, so I'm excited that we've got to have a, got a chance to have that conversation. And then finally, and I don't want to lose folks, at the back end, we get to some really spicy stuff about Deadspin. Uh, we have some real talk about Deadspin on the back end and about what happened at Deadspin and what to make of the new Deadspin and even what to make of those who are now working at the new Deadspin, uh, if you know what I'm saying. So uh, anything else there, guys? Yeah, I think the only thing that I want to add is that if you like the episodes, if you like the podcast, um, like what we're doing, if you're learning new material or you have things to add to our conversation, or if you want to share your thoughts and ideas, we definitely want to hear from you. Um, as, as you guys know from the podcast, we're all about listening to athletes' voices. We similarly care about what you have to say. Um, so please engage with us on social media or send us an email. Our Twitter and Instagram account is at end of sport pod, and you can email us at the end of sport at gmail.com. And as always, also please rate and review us, leave us a text review would be absolutely fantastic. Um, like I said, we really want to hear what you guys like about the podcast so we can sort of keep going in that direction. Um, so any support in that realm would be wonderful. I love that Johanna's our hype person now. She really brings yeah. it. Oh. We really appreciate it. Big <laughs> yeah. time appreciate it. Thank you, Johanna, for that. <laughs> Enjoy the show. Hamilton Nolan is a labor reporter for In These Times magazine and is the Columbia Journalism Review's public editor for the Washington Post. Previously, he worked on staff at Gawker, Deadspin, and Splinter. His work also frequently appears in The Guardian. Hamilton, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and we got a lot to get into. But the first thing we got to ask you, like we ask everyone, how have the pandemic, the rebellions, everything 2020, how have they been treating you in Flatbush, Brooklyn? <laughs> uh, it's been treating me okay. The pandemic is uh, 
you know, uh, the lockdowns are a little making everybody a little insane, I think. Um, but I think everybody in the world is going insane at the same time. So it's, there's a little bit of solidarity in that. And, uh, the rebellions are excellent here in Brooklyn. And, uh, if you hear any fireworks going off outside, um, that's also a trademark of Flatbush. So you just have to roll with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're going to actually have that problem, all of us, maybe in every corner okay. of the country we are in. Last, I mean, this, we're recording this, folks, on uh, July 5th. Uh, and certainly on July 4th, obviously, I mean, my like I had like two hours of fireworks outside my house in Durham, North Carolina. So, uh, yeah, there may be a lot of background noise here tonight. Okay, well, let's listen. We want to re- get right into this because... Um, really, like the main thrust of our show, in a certain sense, is the question of labor and sport. And I think it's a great privilege for us now to have someone who is an expert on labor broadly, um, but also uh, both has written about and has an enthusiasm for sport. So you kind of really intersect with the kind of core issues of the show. And for that reason, we want to kind of touch on some broader issues in the sort of labor and sport, especially during pandemic times, and then also uh, plunge into some of the areas uh, more particular to your work in terms of um, the online media industry with respect to sport uh, and that sort of thing as well. And we'll probably hit that stuff in the back half. But right now, as I said, you work the labor beat, but I noticed that your writing on labor does not often intersect for the most part with your writing on sport which is to say you write on both things, but not always at the same time. Could you perhaps give us a sense of how you understand athletic labor in the wider context of the U.S. labor movement today? And what I mean is, obviously, there are a very wide range of sites, right? I mean, this is like a huge question, because there are all sorts of different ways in which athletic labor operates in places. But I'm thinking right now, because we're definitely going to get to the other, right now about professional sport. Is there a sort of leading local function, um, to a certain extent, to pro sports unions um, because of the prominence of sport as a cultural site? Yeah, I do think that um, that pro sports in America are a sort of good billboard for um, organized labor, you know, and there's there's uh, fairly well known stories about you know Kurt Flood and the unionization of baseball and and things like that, and the uh, the NFLPA, which is the NFL Players Association, um, is actually a member of the AFL-CIO, so they're sort of, you know, formally ensconced in the labor movement itself. Um, the NBA is union, so I, I I guess I generally think of of those professional sports unions as a good opportunity for mainstream America to. Uh, think about unions and to um, think about the value of organized labor. It's probably actually um, the most interaction that a lot of regular people have with uh, labor unions is, is by watching professional sports and reading the sports pages and reading about, you know, contracts and things like that. I mean, and um, you know, I would love to see professional sports be a little more self-conscious about about including themselves in the labor movement, you know, because they have the highest profile really of any uh, union members in America outside of Hollywood, probably. Um, and, you know, they they actually are fairly militant. I mean, the you know, they go on strike, they cancel seasons, they mm. they bargain hard. I mean, and um, 
but but often it doesn't get talked about in the context of the labor movement itself. So I think there's still a lot of opportunity, I guess, um, in sports to to elevate um, what organized labor can do and put it in the minds of everyday people. Could you could you kind of maybe walk us through some of those like possibilities? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that for the most part, pro sports unions um, do a good job of serving uh, the members of those unions who are the players. Um, but I would like to see, you know, I, I want to see LeBron James standing at center court mm-hmm. and talking about unions as something that are not reserved for NBA players, you know, are not reserved for pro athletes, but saying, look, we're out here doing work. You all know who we are. We're doing work and we have a union and here's why we have a union. You know, here's, here's why we, the NBA players, for example, can take collective action on um, the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, here's why we can, uh, negotiate with the league about safety and things like that. You know, here's why we can get a fair cut of all the money that these sports leagues are making. You know, it's because we have a union and also, you know, you can do that. I don't care where you work, you know? So I would like to see these athletes out here, you know, getting in the face of regular people and saying, look, man, we are living proof, you know, we're living proof yeah. of the power of organized labor and you can do that too. Why do you think there's this sort of like distance or like, why do you think pro sports unions haven't done this so far? I guess to me, and I think to all of us here, like it seems like it would sort of be a natural fit that they would speak more broadly to mm-hmm. working conditions, labor conditions and unions. So I'd love to hear what you think about that. Um, there's probably a few reasons. I mean, practically speaking, um, they're really rich. <laughs> They're celebrities. Uh, they tend to be like young guys, you know. Um, labor, uh, labor education is not really a thing that exists in America for the most part, you know, or or in a mainstream sense, right? You don't I mean, say, huh? You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> like if you go to public school in America and you're a jock, you know, and you're the star football player, the star basketball player, like you probably haven't spent a lot of time reading about organized labor history in the early 20th century, you know? So like on a practical level, I think that um, a lot of guys just don't think about it like that. And, you know, that's the case for a lot of people, period, especially in America. Um, So I think that's probably the biggest stumbling block there. There's also certainly, um, you know, when you, when you talk about, especially like the NFL, um, there's very heavy political pressure to not get too radical in any way, shape or form. And I think, you know, um, I think you would see the league getting very touchy about that. Now that's a great reason for them to do it in my opinion, but um, it's, Mm. I'm guessing that those are the reasons, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm glad you pointed out the political aspect because I think that's extremely important. Um, so to kind of transition a little bit more to sort of sports in the, in the pandemic right now, you know, what is your feeling on the rush back to sports in the face of the pandemic? Uh, to what extent do you view this as a collaborative collaborative project between leagues and players or more of a coercive dynamic or sort of somewhere in between? 
I mean, my impression is certainly that the leagues are trying to make it coercive. Um, I guess, you know, it seems like the baseball players did a pretty good job of, of um, holding out and not folding to the league's demands. Um, basketball players, you know, maybe to a lesser extent, and football players still to be determined. Um so I, I think that if it was if it was up to the leagues, I mean, they would just open the doors and, and put the games back on and they really could not care less. I mean, they just want to make money. So um, it's really, you know, this is actually a moment for those those players unions to shine, because just like in every other industry, just, you know, just like it is um, for grocery workers and office workers and fast food workers, man, like they are the only thing serving as a line of defense for people's personal safety right now, you know, because from the business perspective, it's just time to open back up. So um, I hope that uh, the players do make it a collaborative process. And, you know, I think that ultimately it's going to be dictated by reality. I don't think anybody actually knows if we can have sports right now, um, but we're going to find out the hard way. But like, I'm not even sure it is based on reality. Like (laughs) I'm looking at what's happening right now in Florida. And to me, like Adam Silver's silence on this, it speaks volumes. Like, Oh, we're gonna we're still opening up in a couple weeks, and Florida is like quite literally on fire um, with coronavirus. So, like, I'm not sure they're even pondering possibilities to make this like a healthy um, return to work. Like, they are quite literally just throwing them all in and saying like people are gonna get sick, and we're just gonna have to deal with it. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's very similar to what's happening I, I think for business in general um you know it's just a yeah. more high profile example i mean and i'm from florida i got all my family lives in florida and yeah you know the i was down in florida uh, a couple of months ago and yeah there's a lot of magical thinking going on i mean there's just people thinking that if they ignore this it will go away and yeah, it's it's obviously very possible that all these leagues just completely fall apart and all of this is a huge failure. So we'll see. Yeah, well, Florida's kind of, I mean, I've talked about Florida before, having lived there for 10 years. I mean, it's like a capitalist paradise. Yeah. You know, yeah. in the sense in the sense of like, there are very few rules. People don't need to pay property taxes. Like, there's a reason why Disney is down there. I mean, it's just kind of ripe for... Right leagues yeah. such as the NBA to to start back up there. Yeah, the whole state is basically a tax haven. It's a it's really a, you know, it's really a red state. I mean, it's it's obviously changing and it it's very different by region, but um, you know, I grew up in North Florida, very much yeah. a red state, super, you know, it's uh yeah, it is a capitalist paradise and yeah. so um, and a capitalist nightmare too. <laughs> yeah. May may I ask? I, I lived in Gainesville. May I ask where in, in North Florida? Oh, I'm from uh, St. Augustine, not too far oh. away. Yeah. Cool. I I got married in St. Augustine. <laughs> oh, good choice. Very nice. Yeah, time. it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> my my biggest gripe with everything, and this this isn't just in the sporting world, but it's it's my biggest gripe with every 
like return to work scenario that I've seen. And it has been basically like, we are returning to work. Like things are going to quote unquote, get back to normal, but how that looks, we'll figure that shit out later. And that bothers me so much when you're talking about something that like, like a disease that might actually impact us for the next, who knows how long, like we have very little um, evidence to go off in, in terms of how long this is going to affect people and, and the actual negative repercussions. And it's just like, we're going to go back to work and we'll yeah. figure out the actual health protocol later. And yeah. to me, this opens up this big space for like, uh, in my view, like a, a necessary labor pushback, like screw off. Like I'm not going back to work <laughs> under these, uh, under this context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's, you know, I think right now is the first time in my lifetime for sure that that, you know, you can look around and you can really envision something like a general strike happening. You know, it's not it doesn't feel like a a fantasy anymore. I mean, and it's still an open question whether the labor movement can get its shit together um, enough to, you know, to rise to the occasion. I think that I don't know if they're going to do that or not, but I would certainly hope so. And, and, you know, seeing all these people, I mean, having the pandemic and then having these uprised political uprisings right on top of them, you know, it's such a moment of opportunity for uh, the labor movement to, to stand up and kind of, and, and be one with everybody who's out there right now, you know, and to, you know, one of the biggest one of the biggest drawbacks to the labor movement in America is that it's it's not present always. It's not in people's mind. It's not in people's face. It's not it's not at the forefront of what people think about when they think about political action. You know, and there's never been a better time for for them to get there than now. Um, but we'll have to see if they do or not. Indeed, to pivot just a little bit because we want to talk about so many things in this episode i'm i'm really interested so you've written on labor we've we we know that you're uh, an expert on labor um but you've also written extensively on boxing which naturally like coincides with this with this um this show not particular or not primarily from your sort of background um and your labor standpoint how do you reconcile the violence and harm inherent to the sport of boxing. And this is something that I grapple with in my own work. And like, to what extent do we allow or should we condone violence when it's in sport and not in other aspects? So I'm really curious to, to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, you know, I, I love boxing. I just, I just like it. You know, I've, I've been boxing for a long time. Um, I'm a big boxing fan. I like I love boxing as a, you know, as an art, you know, as a sweet science. Um, It's just something that I love. And so, um, as you said, like, there's that aspect of it. And then there's the sort of reality of um, what it means for people trying to make a living in boxing, which is extremely brutal and very exploitative and very winner take all and very... um, you know, the vast majority of people get damaged by it much more than they than they get rewarded by it financially, at least. Um, and that's that's always been true of boxing. It's it's such a brutal sport that um, 
it's always attracted the 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 most desperate people in society because if you have something better if you have an easier path you're not going to become a boxer because it's just too mm-hmm. brutal um and so you know there are a lot of reforms um that could be put into place on a practical level to make the sport and the profession of boxing um less terrible than they are today i mean it really really everything because it does it's, it's it's i mean it's horrible right there's no there's no central governing authority in boxing um there's no league you know there's no there's no one set of standards for the whole country it's a bunch of you know commissions in each state and some of them are just bullshit and you know it's run by promoters who are essentially gangsters in a sense of kind of controlling people so (laughs) you know on a practical level boxing should have a central governing authority it should have labor rights and there are a lot of things that those basic things could do to protect fighters from the worst parts of the damage um that's done in boxing you know but on a on a sort of intrinsic level um boxing is always going to be brutal it just is it's just the nature of it. and i don't think there is any uh reconciling it with you know a concept like workplace safety i mean you can make it safer but um it's it's violent and that's just the nature of it yeah one one of the things we grapple with continuously i think all three of us maybe even all four of us is like figuring out or or like negotiating between like our critical cap like our our critical take on society and culture in general and our like role as sports fans I, I want to ask you like a very like simple question, I guess, like when you're watching boxing and you are putting on that like sports fan hat, like, are you cognizant of all of these sort of insidious aspects of that sport while you're watching it? Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I box at a gym. I box at the same gym for a long time and there's pro fighters at that gym and, and they, you know, have fights on TV and, and, you know, sometimes you hear how much they're making or not making and you know how hard they're working. And so it's a very, like, you're very cognizant of, of how, what a terrible way to make a living it is, you know, um, it's just a bad way to make a living. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it's fair, you know, you can look, you can compare it to the NFL in the sense, and you can say, um, football is a dangerous sport, but if you're going to make millions of dollars at it, it's a, it's a rational risk that people can choose to take, you know? So I think if you could get there in boxing, if you could get the sport of boxing, even to the level of football, which is obviously has its own problems, but you know, to say, okay, this is a very dangerous endeavor, but the rewards will be enough to justify it. And we will have enough protections in place to avoid the worst outcomes. You know, in that case, um, it would be a lot easier to watch boxing um, because uh, it wouldn't be quite so terrible. But yeah, it it is bad in a lot of ways and and people get exploited and it's but you know, there's something there's something fundamental in 
in human nature, I think, that boxing really captures. And that's why it's one reason so many people love to write about boxing, you know, because it's this sort of very, very uh, fundamental to the human experience kind of thirst. And, you know, the, the flip side is the people in boxing who are getting so exploited and the people in boxing who have been torn up and had brain damage and have not made that much money. And, you know, guys who are 60, 70 year old trainers at the gym, you know, those people love boxing more than anybody you'll ever meet. I mean, they love boxing. So it's a, it is something that people love also. And it's something that fighters love, you know, and you have to include that when you talk about it, I think. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, and, and one sometimes that I do struggle to, to maybe give full credit to, I, I don't think about boxing as much just in terms of my own area of focus, more in football, though, right? So and, and I think there's ton, there are tons of analogies there, as you pointed out, right? Like there's a great similarity, even in terms of the exact precise types of harm that people are subjected to, right, and have to live with afterwards. Um, and um, but I, so I actually really have two follow up questions because I had another one and then you kind of got me thinking there. Um, but I'll, I'll circle back to this last point. But before that, you talked about being in the gym, right, and having those conversations with professional fighters about like their wages, right? Um, now, I mean, I get it. Like you're the you're the kind of guy that would ask a question about wages because labor is what you do. Um, and I understand, like, I, I would be like that too. I, I ask questions in spaces that maybe those questions don't normally get asked for the same exact reason. But I'm curious, like, is it weird for you to be having those kind of conversations or are people pretty candid in that kind of space about like boxing as a site of work? Yeah. I mean, I typically ask those questions secondhand. So I'll ask, I'll ask the trainer, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I don't usually go, go right up to the fighter and say how much you make for it. But I will say people are usually pretty candid. I mean, these are, you know, everybody's kind of trying to make it. I mean, if you talk to people who are pro fighters, they're all, they all have that dream, you know, of, of stepping up to the big stage and the big money fights and, um, it's a ladder that you have to climb and it's, it's a very, very brutal ladder because you get, you get knocked off and that's it for you. Um, but, but, you know, in the gym, I mean, people talk and it's, it's, is it's a gossipy place and there's, you know, it's a place full of all these people who sit in there all day, every day and, and do this one thing. Um, and, you know, you know that when you see people who are fighting, um, at a, at a fight in New York city or a fight in Brooklyn, that's not on Showtime and it's not on ESPN. Um, they're not getting paid that much, you know, they're getting paid what 10 grand maybe. Um, and so, yeah, it's not that hard to figure out always. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, something, so what you were describing there, um, it really echoes for me a conversation I had on this show uh, a little while back with Dirk Hayhurst. I'm not from, sure if you're familiar with him, the um, former minor league, major league baseball pitcher. Uh, and then you went on to have a broadcasting career. He's, he's more well known in uh, the Toronto area where I'm from because um, he did that broadcasting work for the Blue Jays and briefly played for the Blue Jays. Um, but the reason I'm bringing it up is because what he really described, um, so much so that we, we, name the episode bootstraps in baseball because he was really talking about like this this american dream mentality that um really pervades the minors and justifies the exploitation 
right? Because his point, he was really frank. And this is what I loved about talking to him. And I think he does a great job of really disseminating something that no, that no one wants to think about with respect to baseball, which is that the conditions in the minor leagues are horrific, right? Um, and it's just, it's just appalling exploitation. Um, and so the question is like, why is that okay, right? Like, why are people willing to put up with that? Why isn't there resistance to it? And there are a lot of questions. One of the issues is the unionization piece, right? And the fact that um, the major league union does not include the minor league players. And so in a, a really perverse way, we have this kind of competition, which is uh, ideal for capital. We have competition in a certain sense between two sites of labor, right? Which always serves the interests of capital. Um, and it leaves the minor league players on the outside and makes them ripe for that kind of exploitation. And it's even worse for them now. Um, they're either not playing at all or they're going to be kind of brought in as you know replacements for when major league players get sick you know the whole thing is twisted um but you know this is a long digression but what i'm trying to get at is his point though is that the thing keeping those minor league players going is this idea that no but when you get to the majors it's worth it right as soon as you cross through that threshold then you're entitled and he was like it's a, he's, his point was it's disgustingly disturbing the level of largesse you receive once you get to the majors right like having lived so long in the minors he was like this is gross why am i in this like luxury hotel living a life like my colleagues over there like just across that you know thin line are suffering and now i'm like living the high life this is this is fucked up right um and i i feel like you know boxing has to have that too right exactly what you're describing the punishment these people these individuals go through because they're hoping to make the big the big bucks but you're also telling me the ideological component like people love it at the same time that's the thing that's so hard for me to reconcile like and, and i just can't accept that like it, that it actually is so pleasurable like it's such a good line of work that people really feel that gratification it has to be a kind of ideology for me that's what i, I can't fight against that yeah and you know i think it's true in all sports that it's you know, when you talk about labor and sports, one thing you kind of come up against is that, you know, the mentality that people have to have as athletes um, is is kind of inherently uh, opposed to the solidarity organized labor mentality. Because, you know, if you're that athlete, if you're that fighter or you're that uh, minor league baseball player, you know, you kind of have to have that belief of like, my fate is in my own hands, you know, that, that is the mentality. It's like, this is an arena where I, I am the master of my own fate. You know, that's part of the appeal. I think of being an athlete is, is you're like, I can, I can achieve greatness with my own hands, you know? And that's, that's part of the drive of, of people who become successful athletes, you know, and that mentality, which you kind of have to have to be a successful athlete does not naturally translate into the mentality of like, okay, I'm in a union now and we're all going to share and share alike. You know, it's, a, it's a very different actually. Um, and so, you know, you can't always ask the athletes like, um, well, I, I don't want to sound patronizing like that, you know, but it, but it's, it's such a different mentality of like, what will, what will help you achieve success in that very, very cutthroat world of sports versus you know what is the appropriate setup that will achieve justice and fairness for all um it's hard for athletes to always naturally slide it from one to the other you know so 
One thing I wanted to mention, Nathan was talking about the uh, the episode with Dirk Hayhurst, and I believe it was Dirk who said something that was basically like, it's a cult. And I don't remember you guys, um, Derek and Nathan, you may be able to, to remember this better than I can, but I'm, I don't know if he, if he was just talking about sport in general or baseball, but I just thought that was really interesting. And even like myself as a former swimmer, like now I wouldn't even dream, like I was doing doubles. I was practicing six hours a day, like three days a week when I was 13. And now I'm like, what the hell was I doing? Why wasn't I being a kid and living my own life? So I think in every sport, there's like this sort of cult like mentality and like you, you have to buy into it almost in order to justify the effort you're putting into it. Um, so I just, I just wanted to add that. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, and we put that on athletes, right? We, we yeah. make athletes dedicate their entire lives to this. And so it's, it's, it's sort of a responsibility for everybody else who's, who's enjoying the fruits of all their labor to, to, uh, give them some fairness. Exactly. And listen, let's, okay. So let's get into the place that like we, we've been in a certain sense, we're kind of beating around the bush here. Um, <laughs> but you know, our listeners know at this point, we like to come back to college sports. Um, and you know, we've had a lot of great conversations with, you know, insiders in college sport from the standpoint of not necessarily insiders of the actual specific world of the athletic department and the playing field of college sport, but insiders in the academy, right? Higher education who are kind of coexisting with college sport and have a lot of different, you know, views on it. But I mean, we, we have been talking to people who have very sympathetic views to the position of athletes and kind of, we've asked a lot of questions about the responsibilities of faculty in that context and others in the university and solid questions of solidarity and all that. Um, and I think we've had some really good conversations, but what, what I would love to talk about with you now is the, the kind of perspective of someone who's not an insider to higher education, but an insider to labor, right? Because I mean, that's what's really missing in the academy is any kind of coherent understanding of what it means to be a worker, because we have a very distorted notion in higher education of that, even though it is clearly a site of labor and you, Hamilton, and all of us, we, we fully understand, you know, between adjunctification, grad worker labor, every, I mean, like the academy is absolutely a critical site of labor today in the United States, but that's not how academics see themselves for the most part, right? Which is what makes it a kind of weird conversation. All right. But I want to talk like what we want to get down to is like brass tacks here, college sport as labor. Um, so way back in 2014, and that, that matters because people are talking about this more now, you know, six years have passed and now it's a real conversation. It's, in, it's a conversation in Congress, right? It's a conversation all over this country. But in 2014, it didn't look exactly the same. Um, and you advocated unionization for college athletes in Gawker. And I'm just going to quote a little bit of what you said at that time to give some context to what you were thinking way back then. You wrote, industries in which everything is peachy keen and workers are treated well and the spoils of labor are distributed fairly do not tend to see strong grassroots desire for unionization. Industries in which the workers are getting fucked tend to be ripe for unions. College sports is the latter. For any college athletes out there, you should know that despite the panicked doomsaying from the establishment, this issue is very simple. Right now, you have almost no power to control your own fate. A union would give you some power. Right now, your sliver of the pie is tiny. A union could give you a bigger piece of the pie. If you're okay with the current situation, then fine. But if you believe it is wrong that a lot of middle-aged men are getting filthy rich off your labor, you may want to consider voting for a union. Your time in college sports is short. You should get something for it. So I'm going to go out, go out a little bit on a limb here and say that 
not much has actually changed in the world of college sports <laughs> since you wrote those words. Can yeah. you walk us through why you view, view college sport as exploitative? Uh, yeah, I mean, let's not make it overly complicated. You know, um, the NCAA makes billions of dollars in revenue. Um, college football coaches and not just head coaches, but staff members get paid six, mm. seven, eight figure salaries, you know, in many states, the the highest paid public employee in many states is the is the college football coach for the state university. Um, so this is a, you know, college sports is an activity that generates a lot of money. And yeah. the people that do the work, don't get any of the money. Um, and that's what it comes down to, you know? Um, and the reality is like, you actually have to tie yourself in some intellectual knots to not recognize um, this, I think, what I think is a very basic and obvious um, <laughs> model of exploitation. I mean, you're taking a bunch of young uh, kids and in many cases, you know, putting their health at risk, you know, in many cases, they destroy their bodies to various extents. They dedicate many years of their life to doing this work, to entertain a lot of people and to make a lot of money for their schools and to, to enhance the brand value of their schools and to enhance the marketing value of their schools. And, you know, there's just billions of dollars tied up in the, in, in the, various branches of value that all these college athletes create and they don't get paid. You know, they get a, they get a, a scholarship. Um, that's not the same thing as a salary. That's not the same thing as a, as a percentage of the revenues that you generate. You know, that's, that, that is a reward that is somebody else said you should get this. That wasn't negotiated for. They didn't negotiate for that and ask for that. You know, they don't get health care for life. I mean, it's um, it's very obvious they're getting ripped off, you know, and there's this fig leaf of amateurism that is, you know, something the NCAA made up to justify keeping all the money. Um, and so I think it's very obvious, you know, and unfortunately, um you know, five years ago, the NLRB ruled that that they ruled against the Northwestern football players who who tried to unionize. Um, you know, so that that didn't happen. There was, you know, they made a good effort. Um, the NLRB ruled against them. The NLRB is often bad, um, but that's not the final word. You know, there's there at the end of the day, labor power is not about. Um, the NL, what the NLRB says, labor power is about the collective power of, of people working together. So um, still tons of opportunity for college athletes to take control um, of their own fate. Uh, they just have to work together. So I think it's very much an open issue. Absolutely. You are just like hitting the nail on the head of like everything that we're trying to do in the podcast and like everything we've been asking people so far. I mean, now as someone who is really plugged into the labor movement more broadly, um, 
we'd be fascinated to hear how you see college sports fitting in into the movement and especially what other sectors could possibly teach athletes about how to unionize in their particular conditions, cons- mm-hmm. uh, given the particular constraints they face, including of a legislative variety. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And um, again, you know, I think it's important when you talk about labor power, you know, labor law in America is, is for the most part terrible. I mean, labor law in America is extremely skewed against working people. And much of labor law in America was designed for the purpose of disempowering working people and not empowering working people. So um, you can't, you can't lean on the law. You know, if, if the law happens to coincide with your interests, that's great, you know, and you should use that as a tool, but really, um, you know, it's a common sense thing. I mean, it's all about looking at what your leverage is, right? And when you talk about college athletes, um, you know, you know, having spent time in Florida and, I mean, the the inherent power that college athletes have is huge. I mean, these states are so insane for college sports that college athletes actually have a ton of inherent power um, that they don't use and that, you know, these institutions work extremely hard to make sure they don't use it. Right. Um, and the NCAA works extremely hard to make sure they don't use that power. Um, but if but if if you know if the University of Florida Gators football team got together and said we're not going to play until X Y and Z happens those things will happen you know i guarantee you those things will happen because people want to see them play so i mean you know in in any industry when you're when you're thinking about how working people can can flex some of their power you know you always have to be kind of ruthlessly realistic about how much leverage do these people really have? Like, what can they really accomplish? You know, and when you think about college sports, tons of leverage. I mean, they're on national TV. There's there's thousands and millions of of crazy fans who who need to see these games like a drug. I mean, these athletes have a ton of power. And, you know, so you're talking about really all it would take is like 50 people to get together and make a choice to do something collectively and they can have a big effect, you know, and you've seen these, these uh, here and there um, labor actions, even during the black lives matter protests um, on various college campuses, various uh, college athletes, you know, and those things get results fast. And that is not true of every kind of labor campaign, but it is true in college sports. And so um I think a lot of it is a matter of just uh, people who are within the world of college sports and who have credibility with these players, you know, talking to these players and educating them about how much power they actually have in their pocket. I'm glad you brought up University of Florida. Um, I can't remember the exact dates. I want to say it was the late uh, 60s, early 70s. The football team, which is not quite what it was today, but had started to desegregate in order to allow football players to come to the school, of course. Um, But they actually were at 
the forefront of like helping or sorry, the forefront of pushing the school to create, it was either an ethnic studies program or an African-American studies program. I don't remember. And so enough, this is something that happens at many other schools too. And so there, you know, there are these histories, even within college football of like athletes banding together and working with groups in and beyond athletics, but it's sort of a history that we don't always know besides the historians that work on it, you know, I am a historian and I worked at the oral history program at UF and we have oral histories on the material and I don't even know it that well, you yeah. know? So I think that's also a huge problem is that we do have these histories, um, but it's just ones that we're not that familiar with. And, and as you said, even earlier that, you know, it's not like, as not like we're teaching people to think in like labor oriented terms. So, I mean, it's mm -hmm. this sort of real huge concerted effort to sort of keep us from knowing about it, keep athletes from advocating for themselves and sort of all these things tied into one. Right. And that is really one place where, where a union could do so much good because um, you think about these athletes who are coming into these schools, you know, they're only there for a few years. And um, if you had, so, if you had a union, ideally a union, but even a, a player's association that, that functioned as some sort of labor group, that could be there and offer some continuity, you know, so that every year when new athletes come in, they're getting educated on, you know, the history of things that you're talking about, but also mm -hmm. getting educated on seeing themselves as workers and on understanding uh, what leverage they have and understanding what rights they should be asking for. You know, you, you do have to kind of teach these things to people a little bit. And there needs to be some kind of group that's doing that on a continual basis because athletes are always washing through and washing through and washing through. Yeah, you you mentioned some some recent developments in the sort of world of college football, um, whether that be like Chuba Hubbard or or Kylan Hill, a variety of of people. I think you were alluding to, and I I'm curious. Do you see the recent developments in college football, um, particularly since the start of the rebellion, as sort of heralding this profound shift in terms of labor militancy in, in college sport? <laughs> uh, it's always dangerous to make predictions about you know, <laughs> the revival of labor militancy because they've pretty much been predicting that since the uh, 20s and um, doesn't always come true. So I guess the honest answer is I have no idea uh, if yeah. it does or not. <laughs> I, I hope so. You know, I do think that it's true that um, – Sometimes when people get a taste of labor power is very eye opening, you know, because mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a form of power that people many times go through their whole life and never, never get to exercise that power, you know, especially in America where there's not a strong culture of of organized labor. And so, you know, you would hope that, yeah, these these young people who uh, are are doing this now and seeing um, the results they get, which are significant, tangible, meaningful results. Um, hopefully some eyes are opened by that. And hopefully, uh, that does spark a, a grand revival of labor militancy in college sports, but I'm not going to go on the record with that prediction because I'm usually wrong. One of the things that isn't often talked about, at least like in the, the rhetoric and the narratives that I hear in college sport is that like many of these athletic laborers are coming from states um, particularly when we're talking about revenue generating sports like basketball and football, they're coming from right to work state. So like it's mm -hmm. trained in so, so early that 
they sort of don't question um, anything when it comes to labor. And the fact that some of these people are also now coming out and, and speaking against that and have been for like many years, but I think we're seeing more often now, like that is, that's something to be like proud of. And it's something to be like, it's something to really respect when players do that because of how ingrained the, the counter or the anti-union rhetoric probably is in their ears, like growing up um, in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think anytime you're talking about um, organized labor in America, you know, you have to talk about the fact that a lot of people just have no sense of unions and organized labor at all because they just did not grow up with that as a presence in their lives in any way, shape or form, you know, so um that's like, especially when I, you know, when I'm talking to to people who who are like in the labor world one way or another, I think that that we can lose sight of that a lot of times. You know, you're talking to all these other union people and labor people. I mean, it's always good to take a step back and be like, ninety uh, percent of working people in America don't have a union, which means you know, ninety percent of people in America, or at least the majority of people in America, are growing up. Not only are their parents not in a union, but, you know, probably they don't know anybody in a union. They don't really have any grounding in that. And so it's it's very much like a, a, a constant education process. I mean, even when we unionize the media, uh, the, the, we, we've been organizing digital media over the past five years or so. And, you know, even in that field, which is which is primarily like well-educated uh lefty type people a lot of people don't have really any any connection to unions you know it's really like uh you're starting in square one um so you make a good point you know it's it's only worse when you talk about people who are all coming out of of uh the south and right to work states where not only do they not have like union members in their family probably but they've they've only heard negative messages about that their whole life probably so um i mean i totally agree i think we all do about the sort of negative connotations about labor unions and i guess one thing i wanted to ask more broadly is you know the issue of police unions is something that is very much in the media, very much in the in the in the sort of public conversation, this idea that police unions have way too much power, and that this is sort of one of the main um, ideas at the heart of the defund the police movement. So I guess I was wondering if you could kind of parse that out a little bit and sort of explain a little bit for our listeners, and even for me too, who's not super familiar with it. You know, why is it that police unions have so much power, um, and sort of how that differentiates from what we're talking about in terms of unions for athletes. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, I guess, a few different threads in that. I mean, on a, on the most basic level, um, police unions collectively bargain for police. And uh, in many cases, what they have used their power to collectively bargain are um, contracts that make it extremely hard to, uh, for example, fire bad cops. Um and so, you know, a very practical effect of the power that police unions wield in America is it makes police reform extremely hard. Um, and you can add to that that uh, police unions tend to be aligned with Republicans. Um, 
the the most anti-labor people in America, the only unions they like, right, are the police unions. I mean, the police unions get exempted from anti-labor laws and things like that. So, um, you know, I guess the, on the most basic level, you know, police unions empower the police. Um, and so all the bad stuff that, that police do, police unions help them do that, right? So that, that's the basic level. But then when you look at it also from the perspective of the labor movement itself, um, and particularly in the context of, you know, the last month and the people that are out in the streets right now and the sort of moment that we're living in um, concerning police brutality and police reform and defunding the police, you know, um, if you're in the labor movement, uh, the labor movement itself is having a, a sort of come to Jesus moment on police unions because uh, there's a difference between police unions and other unions. You know, the, the purpose of the labor movement is to empower working people, right, and to help achieve social justice. That is what the labor movement is about. And police unions actually have the opposite effects. You know, police unions, by empowering the police, disempower uh, every other working person um, because of the function that police serve in society. And so when you recognize that and you're in the labor movement, you know, I, I think we're having a moment now where it's becoming clear to a lot of people that the, the labor movement cannot serve the interests of the police and the interests of all other working people at the same time. I mean, it, it's two sides of a coin. You cannot, it simply cannot be done. And so um, that's a reason why you're seeing now uh, calls within the AFL-CIO to uh, kick out the International Union of Police Associations, which is the big uh, police union member of the AFL-CIO. Um, you know, partly it's about police reform and partly it's also about saying, look, the labor movement needs to pick a side. The labor movement needs to be on the right side. And you cannot serve both masters at the same time. You cannot serve the interests of the police and the interests of um, the reporters in my union who were getting body slams and unjustly arrested by the police while they were out covering the protests. Right. I mean, you can't serve both of them at the same time. And so. People want the labor movement and the the institutions in the labor movement and the unions themselves that that have police members to really stand up right now and um, have a reckoning about this issue. And, you know, police have the right to have unions. Um, nobody can take away their right to have unions, but they don't need to be a part of the labor movement that's supposed to be working for the interests of everybody, for the, for the interests of the people that those police are oppressing. And um, that's kind of the conversation that's being had right now. And we'll, I don't know how it's going to turn out yet, but time will tell. Yeah, no, thanks for that. That was really illuminating. Um, so we re really appreciate that um, yeah. elaboration on the issue. Cause it really, I mean, there's, there's, this is one of the core issues of our time right now. Um, and so I think that everyone should be thinking about it, whether they think this is sort of a sports talk or not, it's really what we need to be thinking about. And we need to be connecting sports to these other social issues and these other labor issues anyway, right. And not making these arbitrary and deeply problematic kind of silos between them, which make it possible to view sport as this site where, 
labor doesn't happen. Um, and, and, you know, again, that's what happens on our campuses, right? We, we faculty view it that way. They view athletes as not all, obviously, but I mean, too many faculty view athletes as a problem for them to deal with, right? I.e. the students that are, quote unquote, not engaged enough, right? And that's, that provides a problem for them in an academic setting. They don't view them as workers on the campus who are being viciously exploited and need their solidarity, right? Which is a completely different frame. And it's a frame um, that is sorely missing. And, and the reason I'm saying this is because you have been very attentive to the phenomenon of adjunctification in higher education, including the growth of unionization among non-tenure track faculty. And by the way, I'm a member of the Duke Faculty Union in the SEIU, Southern United. Um, so they're nice. united, right? So, I mean, I know exactly that this is, I mean, and you've done a lot of work with the folks in Florida who are part of the kind of same broader movement that we are. Um, the yeah. SEIU has, has unionized um, college, community colleges, I think, specifically, but enormous yep. community colleges uh, in Florida, like right. unfathomably large schools. Um, so what I'm trying to get at here is it seems to me that if there is to be increased labor militancy among college athletes, which is what we've been talking about, it also requires solidarity from other members of the campus community. But the, the question is, and again, we're kind of asking you to prognosticate a little, but it's really just analysis to try to see what's possible. Do you see the potential for solidarity between, for instance, adjuncts and athletes, grad workers and athletes, tenure track faculty, staff, and athletes? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, I mean, congratulations on your union also. I know that's a good union that you have. Um, Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, we, we, were, gonna, we, were, gonna, we were supposed to be negotiating our uh, second collective agreement, um, but thanks to the pandemic, that's going to be off um, for a year. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, you know, solidarity always makes unions stronger, um, but it's not, it ain't easy to achieve because it requires people to sometimes look beyond their own immediate interests and sometimes to. It requires people to expend their own precious political capital on on other people, you know, and that's generally the stumbling block. I mean, it's you talk about the um, the adjunct unions, which which in many cases are are very strong unions, um, but adjunct unions even have trouble getting solidarity from the full time professors, you know, which is ridiculous. I mean, it, it's like. It's you're doing the boss's work for him. I mean, but in too many cases um, that I've come across in my reporting, and I'm sure you know this on a firsthand basis. I'm not sure how it is at your school, but you know, in many cases, the 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 full time tenured faculty are really not doing anything to help um, the adjunct professors. Um, you know, and it's more of a I'm glad I'm not them type situation rather than seeing, you know, rather than those two groups getting together and unionizing. I mean, part of part of solidarity and part of uh, understanding leverage is, you know, the people that have the most power and the people that have the most leverage have to use that on behalf of the people that have the least. And so on college campuses, that means that the tenured professors who are at the top of that food chain need to first give a hand up to the adjuncts and to the grad student workers and to the athletes, which, you know, I think it's good that you bring that up because that's not even really um, a functional conversation uh, in, in the world of higher ed unions um, 
as far as I know, and, and it should be, you know, and the flip side is that, I mean, if you got the members of the Duke basketball team back in your union, <laughs> you know, you, you guys are going to do all right. Right. So like <laughs> might it, have a point it's in there. everybody's interest. So, so I, I, on that note, I think it's a perfect place to kind of pivot to exploring um, your role in media and your experience um, uh, uh, writing and, and um, working in media. I, we're really curious um, how you view um, how sports are sort of typically covered in media, why that is, and how that, I think most importantly for this question, how those like traditional or typical coverage of sport in media actually contributes to the labor injustice of college sports. And then like to even like compound a little bit more, what a labor focused sports commentary might actually look like. <laughs> wow. Um, that's a big question. Um, I mean, it's definitely true that the, the traditional tone of, of sports coverage in America and, you know, the, I guess you call it the ESPN school of, of sports coverage, um, is certainly not looking at athletes as workers, right? I mean, there's, that's, they're probably actively hostile to, um, looking at athletes as workers because, uh, it's just, I don't know, you know, I think, I think there's probably some very deep, like parts of the American psyche involved in this and, and the fascist roots of the American mind um, are probably tied pretty deeply into this. But yeah, like suffice it to say, traditional sports coverage um, has not played up that aspect. And, and, you know, I guess you could, you could say a nice interpretation would be it's geared to the fans and the fans yeah. don't care about that. The fans just care about watching the games. Um, and so, you know, of course there could be um, uh, a sports media that does do that more. And, you know, to be fair, like there obviously are um, sports outlets that, that cover it in that frame. I think Deadspin covered sports through that frame pretty successfully. Um, but obviously they're not, they're, they're not wielding the power of ESPN. Um, you know, and I mean, part of it is you, you just run up against when you get to big enough, um, media companies, you know, you run up against fundamental things in capitalism, like, you know, is the Disney corporation really going to promote organized labor strongly? Probably not, you know, you run up against some self-interest things at, at the top end of capitalism. So, but there's no reason why, um, why especially smaller um, sports outlets can't view it like that. So you are, you come from, you've worked in Deadspin. So you've worked with like big, um, big media uh, organizations and you've covered sport and labor um, for a long time. Could you give us a little bit of a, of a very brief kind of background into your career um, as a, 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 I guess we, would we call you a journalist, like a labor rights writer? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a journalist. Um, I started out working at Alt Weekly in Florida uh, when I first got out of school. 
I moved to New York and worked at a trade magazine, um, which I thought would be just a terrible job that I would leave really soon. I ended up being there for like three years. Um, but I was, I was kind of covering the media. So I got to meet a lot of people. Um, I got hired at Gawker after that, um, as sort of a media reporter. And I stayed at Gawker for, for, you know, eight years until it got sued out of existence by a right-wing billionaire. Um, but over the years at Gawker, uh, I expanded to write about a lot more things. I wrote about more politics and, and I wrote about more labor also, um, you know, my, my parents were involved in the labor movement, so I'd kind of grown up hearing about those things. Um, and I wrote about labor more and more over the years at Gawker. In 2015, we unionized Gawker. Um, and uh, subsequently, a lot of places throughout our industry also unionized. So we were kind of, we were kind of living it and writing about it at the same time, which was, which was fun. Um, and then Gawker got sued out of existence. It got shut down. They launched a site called Splinter, which was a politics site. I continue to write about labor a lot um, at Splinter. Splinter subsequently got shut down by a private equity firm. So we're kind of like hitting all the high points of like terrible uh, media ownership. And uh, and then earlier this year, I was hired at In These Times, which is a good uh, lefty magazine uh, where I'm doing primarily labor coverage there also. So can we ask what happened at Deadspin? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, bad owners happened at Deadspin, you know? I mean, the backstory was like, for anybody that doesn't know, um, Gawker Media was kind of this like swashbuckling independent media company. It was famous for like, we write what we want. We speak the truth. Like that's basically what Gawker Media was known for. And Deadspin was part of that, certainly, and was famous for that in the world of sports. Um, after Peter Thiel uh, sued Gawker into bankruptcy, the entire company went bankrupt. It was bought by Univision. Univision sucked. They were a big corporate owner. They didn't know what to do with us. Um, they sold the company to a private equity firm who are just like a bunch of you know, a bunch of middle-aged business guys who want to who want to increase profits, and that's literally all they care about. Um, so they they tried to tell Deadspin that they could only write about sports. And anybody who knows anything about Deadspin knows that Deadspin writes about whatever it wants, and that was what made Deadspin great. Um, and you know, these guys who took over the company had no idea. Um, how seriously the people of Deadspin took uh, editorial freedom. I mean, you read a, you could read a site like Deadspin and it's kind of just full of dumb jokes and a lot of stupid humor all the time. And you think that, you know, but they, there's a very solid core um, that those people had, which was we are going to exercise our editorial freedom and we're not going to compromise on that. So you know, the dumbass private equity guys um, fired Barry Pachetsky, who was the editor of Deadspin, for, who said, I'm not going to do your stupid rule. They fired Barry. And subsequently, the entire staff of Deadspin quit um, because, you know, fundamentally, they thought that the owners were unethical and they were unethical. And so it was kind of this incredible display of bravery by 
um, the entire staff at Deadspin, probably the, the single bravest thing I've ever seen in journalism, actually. I mean, I think that those wow. people actually <laughs> should be, you know, it like taught in journalism school. Like you never, I mean, the entire staff quit and you're talking about people on that staff have kids, people have, you know, uh, they have to pay rent, like people have medical bills. Um, it, and it is not a small thing um, to quit to quit that job. It's not easy to get a good job in journalism. And especially at Deadspin, for a lot of people, was their dream job. You know, it really was. Like people, this was the job that that had everything they wanted. And they all quit because the owner wasn't ethical. Um, and so, you know, they're kind of heroes, even though I would never tell them that to their face. Um, but they, they did a really heroic thing and probably the most ethical thing you'll ever see in journalism. And, uh, and some of them are still looking for jobs to this day, you know, but that's, that's what it means to them to stand up for that principle. Now, what was that like that mass exodus? Was that like a coordinated thing? Um, how did that act the exodus actually take place? Um, yeah, I mean, I was I had actually been laid off from Splinter by the time that Deadspin did that, so I was not in the building at the time, mm. but uh, oh. but I mean. Basically, it was like if you, you know, if you know the people at Deadspin, it's like they're all friends. They're all they're all anybody who understood, you know, the thing is, like anybody who understood what Deadspin really was would have known that was going to happen because they're not just going to sit there and let these idiots fire Barry, who's their friends, you know, their editor and their friends and someone they respect and just sit there and do nothing. I mean, they fundamentally uh, felt like, you know, they were taking away what made Deadspin Deadspin. Mm. And so once Barry got fired, I think, you know, a couple other people quit and the process took a few days. I think, you know, people had to maybe get their affairs in order a little bit, but but once once people started going, it was almost inevitable that everybody was going to go um, because, you know, even though it sucked for them, they weren't going to sit there and do a job that they thought was unethical. Mm-hmm. Now, I was wondering um, for people um, who may not be super familiar with with Deadspin, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about um, sort of conditions at Deadspin, but also sort of what made it exceptional or not within the industry in terms of Deadspin as an employer, but also the kinds of journalistic and intellectual interventions that it made. Mm -hmm. I think um, Deadspin, you know, Deadspin was the sports site, the quote unquote sports site of Gawker Media. And it it had the, um, it had the same quality, I think, that made the other sites like Gawker and the other sites at Gawker Media um, special, which was, you know, they told the truth um, and they didn't compromise. And uh, it's, it's hard to put into words, you know, to people who um, maybe didn't, didn't read those sites at the time, you know, but I worked at Gawker. I actually worked at Deadspin for a year after, after they shut down Gawker. and the, those sites were the same in the sense that, like, you know, what I always told people about Gawker was that, you know, we weren't necessarily 
the smartest people in the world and we weren't necessarily the best writers in the world, but we would, we would write think what the truth was and we would say the things that everybody else was afraid to say. And that's what made us important. And that's what Deadspin did too. And they did it in the world of sports, which is, which is a much more um, conservative world in many ways than, than, you know, mainstream news as a whole. So in that sense, I think Deadspin, um, made a big mark on the entire sports media. Um, but I'm, I'm not doing a good job of putting it into words. I guess go back and read the archives. <laughs> now, can I, can I ask you just very briefly about um, labor conditions and sort of a day in the life of a digital sports media person? Like just generally speaking, what's it like to work in that field? Uh I think for people who worked at Deadspin, um, they would probably get up in the morning and you just get up in the morning and you sort of look at the news and you start writing blogs. Um, if you're a blogger, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And there are other people, you know, one of the things that made a site like Deadspin great was that, you know, there were people there who did exactly that. They would get up in the morning, they would read the news, they would write blogs about what's in the news, and that's what they did all day. And then there were other people who might spend three months working on a huge investigative long-form story and would only write a few big stories a year. And so you had this kind of incredible mix, and then you had all everything in between that as well. Um, so you had this kind of incredible mix of of like editorial content. Um, so yeah, I mean the life of a digital media, it's, uh, probably drink a lot of coffee and, uh, and stare at a laptop for a long time. I think, uh, it's always funny to me because they're, you know, they've, there are a lot of people once Gawker got sued out of existence who, who, who wrote screenplays about Gawker and stuff, and they're going to make like a TV show or they want to make movies and, you know, a realistic movie would be like a huge room full of people staring at laptops for eight hours and then <laughs> laughing like every 15 minutes someone would laugh. And that's about it. So I wouldn't over-dramatize it too much. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I wouldn't necessarily expect it to be glamorous. Actually, like, I, I'm pretty impressed. It sounds like the conditions were pretty good, though, in the grand scheme of things. And I say that because it seems to me as an outsider to the, to the profession that as with so much work... Um, you know, in like a context of neoliberal America, it's grueling, right? It's it's grueling to have the demand to be pumping out stories and to have to like be on all the time. Um, it's it's like it seems like a really attractive, appealing kind of line of work. Like it actually, to me, the reason why I'm sort of interested in this question, it's almost analogous to athletic labor in that way, right? In the sense that we don't view like or as a society, I mean, collectively, like we tend not to view that as labor because it seems like you're playing a kid's game, right? Like you get to do something that's really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, supposedly and it's kind of the same thing when we talk about the sphere of like media like people dream of being like a reporter or they dream of getting to talk about sports for their job right like it's the same kind of dream existence mm-hmm. uh, and that erases the grind of that existence which seems to me exceptionally difficult like the kind of hours i mean different than maybe than the deadspin thing but like other sports reporters you know they're they're staying up until 11 30 12 right writing the stories yeah. um you know there's not a lot of relief there and then you're in an industry i mean I, and i think this is where to me i see the analogy to kind of higher education as well the intense precarity like even if you aren't precarious in the sense that you're let's say a freelancer which the vast majority of people at this point are right i mean 
at the same time, like, even if you're not in that, so there's this feeling that your company could collapse at any moment. I can only imagine, right. right? I think you've even written about that, like 10 years, you wrote recently this year, about 10 years in the media industry sort of thing, like yeah. reflecting on that. And I can't imagine it. Like even the people who I would look at on Twitter and say, wow, like that's a great job to have. That person is sort of sitting at the pinnacle of the profession. Tomorrow that company could close and that person's out. Yeah, that's a very real thing. I mean, it's not just the impression that your company could collapse, but the reality that your company could collapse at any time. And, um, you know, all those things that you say are true. I mean, it, it was a great job. If you're the kind of person that likes that sort of thing and that likes running your mouth a lot, um, it was it was a dream job in a sense, but it also was a grind and it also was extremely precarious. And, you know, one of the driving forces behind um, Gawker Media unionizing uh, and being the first place really in the industry to unionize was um, that kind of duality of like people saying, you know, I love this job, but we need to make this job better, you know, like. And and the fact that people at some point want to have a career and not just a hustle, you know, I mean, it's OK to have a hustle when you're 22, 23, 24, 25, you know, people get in their 30s and they're like, am I really just going to be hustling and constantly getting a different job every year until I'm 60 in order to be a journalist? Is that what it means to be a journalist? I mean, it's it's crazy. And so there definitely was. Um, a lot of feeling that people want to inject some stability into a into an unstable industry, and I think that unions uh, in our industry have done have accomplished that to some extent. I mean, obviously there's a limit um, to what unions can do, but but the kind of safety nets that exist at all these places um, and that have been built over just the past five years are like you know, night and day compared to what it was before that, which was absolutely nothing. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Um, well, listen, I, I got to ask you a pretty touchy question now, going back to this dead spin narrative, because what you described was an incredibly, as you, as you put it, an incredibly courageous labor action, right? Um, a labor action that is really almost analogous again to the kind of labor actions we're asking college athletes to consider, right? Something that's outside of the norm, um, that, that takes a, potentially a tremendous personal cost, the kind of thing that, that, that's necessary in any robust labor movement to make an impact on working conditions, right? And you described like actual, real, tremendous solidarity among the staff at Deadspin. But now we have a situation like Deadspin still exists in the world. It's not gone, right? Has this new ownership and it's hiring new people, right? Um, and what they're hiring are, they're not, it's like they're not, I mean, they're not keeping the same Deadspin that used to exist. Obviously that can't ha like it's, it can't be the same. Editorial freedom, I think as you pointed out, was like essential to what Deadspin was, right? So if that doesn't exist, then it's not the same. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to cover over that. But they're not hiring like right wing writer. They're not trying to turn into like a you know bar stool or some shit like that, mm -hmm. right? Like they're trying to keep the brand of Deadspin, which is to be like a left sports site, which means that they're hiring left sports writers, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, and look, it's hard because as you have, as we've all been talking about at this point, it's a terrible industry. It's a painful industry that people have devoted 
years of their lives into cultivating the, you know, their skills, their capacities, and there are almost no jobs anywhere, right? And everyone deserves to be able to make a living. I get that. And mm -hmm. I want people to be able to make a living, right? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be able to make a living for any worker. Mm -hmm. And the workers do not create the conditions that make it hard for them to make a living. That's all true. You know, and it would yeah. be ridiculous to ignore that. But at the same time, that's always been true in capitalism, right? In any site that there's labor and labor action in capitalism, there's also tremendous pressure, downward pressure from capital on labor that makes it dangerous and difficult and terrifying and just painful to engage in any labor action ever. And you know this, if I mean, just for the, to anyone universally, not you specifically, Hamilton, but like one knows this if one has participated in any labor action ever, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's scary and it's hard. And it relies on solidarity fundamentally, right? And solidarity between members of a union, let's say, members of a labor force, and solidarity from the Industrial Reserve Army, right? The Reserve Army of Labor. That is to say, those people outside of the employment of that particular firm who might want to have it. Because if there isn't solidarity with those folks, right? It's a downward pressure on all of our wages and working conditions. And that gets put to the test in a labor action. It's always there in an abstract sense. But when there's a labor action, then we, right? It's like, are you... Are you going to call, they call the bluff, right? In a certain sense, those, those workers at Deadspin threatened in some sense to say, like, you can't do this. So you can't get rid of our editorial freedom, right? If you do, yeah. there will be consequences. And then that happens. And so they can either follow through with the consequences and they flex their power as workers, or they can not and give up and have no power as workers, right? Yeah. And they flex the power. They did it. They did the real thing. But... Yeah. Then in that moment, that's where the broader solidarity comes in. Other people have to have their back in this wider labor movement. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't really happened. And so I'm curious what you think of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to people needing jobs also. Um, but, you know, what happened at Deadspin... Um, you know, and, and full disclosure, like I haven't read the new Deadspin ever, like since, uh, since all the real Deadspin people left, I have never read the site again. So I can't even tell you if it's good or not. I hear it's not, but, um, I can't, I can't pass judgment for myself. Um, you know, as sympathetic as I am to people needing jobs, um, I think that, you know, whatever exists today, it's not Deadspin, um, because, what Deadspin, you know, the reason why those people quit was because the boss was trying to take away what was central to making Deadspin what it was. Um, and so, you know, you can you can keep the name on it and you can hire new staff, but it's not Deadspin because all the Deadspin people quit and they quit for the express reason that they were destroying the essence of what Deadspin was. So what they have now is a, is a, a sports site called Deadspin. Um, it's not Deadspin. And, you know, uh, Billy Hazley, who, who worked at Deadspin, wrote a really good essay about this very topic on uh, unnamedtemporarysportsblog.com, which was a little pop-up thing that the, the former Deadspin people did a couple times. Um, and, you know, he basically said, look, you know, uh, if somebody offered me a dream job, um, I'm sure I would be very tempted to take it. 
But if I understood the sort of exploitation in the background of that, then I could never, you know, of course I wouldn't take it. Um, and he said this in a much funnier way than I'm saying it now. But, you know, essentially what he said was like, you can't take the job or you're an asshole, you know, and I think that's just the reality. If you understand the reason why, it's not like these people left by accident. They didn't leave uh, under natural circumstances. You know, they left as part of a really important labor action. And so as sympathetic as I am, the people needing jobs, like if you go in and you take that job and you try to act like you are still deadspin, you are um, in some pretty serious ways undermining what they did. Yeah, um, I, I think that's really well put. Um, and I, honestly, I, I don't actually have even even that much to add to that because I think I think that's that's the bottom line. I, as much as I want to be sympathetic, um, you know, <laughs> you can't look past if we, if we really want to think about this as a labor question. That's the bottom line. Um, we need yeah. like that's what solidarity means, and we're in desperate need collectively in a society of solidarity right now. So um, those kind of more spectacular examples, right? Because it's, it's a media site. It's out there. It's in the open. You know, that's a that's a really profound kind of lesson for a lot of, let's say, sports fans, right? And sports fans on the left about how to operate when push comes to shove. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the people we want to model ourselves on are the folks who took that stand at, at Deadspin in the first place. Um, so just really, I got a, a last question for you here. Um, and that is, you know, as much as the digital media industry is suffering, I would say that as readers, we are still blessed today by a wide range of platforms with really high quality, labor oriented, critical writing about politics and culture. You know, in these times is one current affairs, Jacobin, Descent, N plus one, LA Review, Boston Review. I mean, there's a lot there are a lot of really good publications. Uh, I have, I'm, not, I'm not trying to give it an exhaustive list, but I'm just trying to give an indication, though, of what I'm going to get to here, which is that I can't help noticing because of what I do that these sites pay scant attention to sport, which is the most popular form of culture, incidentally, <laughs> in this country. Would you agree that perhaps that is a rather considerable omission? Um, and how might you account for it? <laughs> uh, yes, I think it probably is. It probably is a serious omission um, when, you, when you think about you know, the importance of sports in our culture, um, I think that is probably true, yes. And probably uh, how I would account for it if I were to make a wild guess is that the type of people that tend to grow up and write for Jacobin aren't the biggest sports fans, usually. Um, so <laughs> my guess would be um, that most of the pool of writers for a lot of for a lot of those kind of publications that you named are just not really really uh tuned into sports as their uh, as one of their main interests um so you know there's no reason that that those publications can't cover more sports and shouldn't you know but i guess i guess to push back a little bit um Sports uh, is not an area of life that is undercovered in the media, right? I mean, <laughs> that's maybe a good point. Yeah, you got it's that. Under, it's undercovered in this in this particular framework that you're talking about. I do think that's true, but um, you know, if you're uh, if you're a, a lefty magazine and you're trying to 
you have space for one story and it's like the sports story or the migrant farm worker story, you know, like <laughs> you, you might, you might, you might just not lean towards sports that much. So I don't know, you guys, you guys should start a journal maybe is, is what I'm, what I'm hearing there. <laughs> Fortunately, I think that's sort of what we're trying to do. Um, I know me personally, I'm pursuing this as a way to avoid sort of more writing, but I do think <laughs> we obviously all, all of us uh, have, have a lot of, a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts to share. Um, so we really just want to say, Hamilton, thank you so very, very much for all of your time, all of your insights. I feel like we just peppered you with questions from like so many different angles and you handled, handled them beautifully and have really given us so much to think about in terms of sort of how to move forward, how athletes and us as academics might move forward and sort of how we might draw together these seemingly disparate threads or these disparate threads that have been made to seem disparate. They're not really as, as you're pointing out to here. So thank you so very much. Awesome, thank you for having me. And uh, sorry I talk so much, but very good discussion, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The End of Sport. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.